The views expressed on the patient's perspective come directly from patients, so they are not intended to diagnose, treat, or replace professional medical advice. Information coming from the patient's perspective is for entertainment and educational purposes only. So if you have any health concerns regarding yourself or anyone else, please see a physician. The Patient's Perspective is a podcast created by patients for patients and does not focus on any specific disease or condition. Content may make you laugh, cry, and question your moral beliefs surrounding healthcare and the many issues patients run into while in the system. Finally, the most important point of view is cast into the light. The Patient's Perspective. And so there's this other sort of dangerous side of technology where there are these unintended consequences uh, that we might see. And this is where we start to get into uh, a fabulous world of philosophical debate, uh, which is the world of technological determinism, uh, which is most specifically this idea about whether or not technology has a determinist effect, uh, that it determines the outcome uh, and there are lots of different opinions of it, one of which being the sort of unintended consequences argument. Others who say quite literally that technology controls us, uh, which would be a hard determinism stance. Um, and then some people who are not really quite sure uh, that are maybe a little bit more agnostic about it. Um, but yeah, I thought maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking about this determinism and the way that uh, specifically when we look at uh, lack of access to technology can have very determinist outcomes, uh, as well as the way that we think about disability in general can lead us into making some very bizarre decisions when it comes to the way we fund access to technology. Yeah, I um, I just want to, I mean, it's a little bit of a joke in my house, but I'm almost completely deaf in, in my left ear just due to the fact that I'm having lots of ear infections as a child. And sometimes persons will be standing behind me and I'll like turn around and be like, we've been talking to you, calling out your name for a few, a few minutes. I'm like, oh, and that's when I have to inform them that I'm, I'm part, I'm almost deaf in the left ear. And like you said, Jeff, everyone's like, oh, well, why don't you get a hearing aid or why don't you go that? And, and the running joke is I'm like, well, there's some perks to not be able to hear out of one ear. <laughs> right. <laughs> I learned that having children. You know, when the baby was crying and I knew the baby was fine and I was trying to sleep at night, I just switched whatever ear was on my pillow and then I wouldn't be able to hear it as much. You know, so there were some perks to being half deaf, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Candace, you want to step in on that one? Yeah, I just kind of would like to um, touch back on that determinism word. And so as you were describing this, Jeff, uh, a new technology that's actually been touted to maybe possibly be the next big thing to help people with MS, mm -hmm. Elon Musk's Neuralink. Now. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> whoa, right? So I might be a little agnostic on that front. <laughs> I'm thinking my brain's going, okay, Robocop, uh, Terminator, <laughs> uh, all the tech movies that scared me. And I was a horror junkie as a kid. The only things that ever actually scared me were like these dystopian technology <laughs> horror flicks, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, like I, I don't think even, even if my spinal lesions were to 
make me completely lose use of my legs that I would consider even implanting a new electrode in my brain for Pete's sake that gets a, a chimp up playing video games, you know? Yeah, I mean, the the dream of of high tech really in the last sort of 30, 40 years has been this the dream of interfacing directly to the brain. Um, and there are a lot of dead monkeys uh, that are, you know, paving the way uh, because uh, the, the skull is actually uh, really good at protecting the brain. Uh, and so a lot of the early research, uh, they had to quite literally remove parts yeah. of the skull and, uh, you know, these animals didn't survive. Uh, but more recently, there's been this, this like obsession with building walking devices uh, for disabled people, right? Uh, these devices that will allow them to walk these sort of exoskeleton type things, kind of rooted off of the, um, uh, the Aliens movie. Uh, when, you know, Ripley at the end of the movie gets into this loader, uh, right? This sort of big robot walking thing that allows her to be stronger, bigger, tougher. Uh, and so we have all these companies that are designing these like walking devices. Um, and it's like, guys, a manual wheelchair is way more mobile, it's way cheaper, it's way easier to use. Like, why? Why are we dumping huge amounts of resources into solving a problem that was solved when the wheel was invented, more mm -hmm. or less? Uh, and so people will say, well, but what about stairs? What about stairs? Uh, and so they try to make wheelchairs that climb stairs. We have huge amounts of money that's going into um, research into things like the iBot, uh, which was a, a wheelchair based off of the Segway technology. Uh, it never did get uh, approval to be sold in Canada, uh, which is probably convenient because uh, it didn't work. Uh, and uh, it is no longer really used in the United States because uh, it was constantly uh, freezing when trying to walk up and down stairs. So um, probably a good call, Canadian government, tip of my hat to you on that one. Um, and so we have these sort of like fantasies, right? And these fantasies, I think, are largely driven by non-disabled people, inventors and creators who are thinking about their own morality and mortality. Maybe their morality as well. Probably not. Most of their mortality. Uh, they're thinking about their mortality and saying, oh, geez, well, I don't want to not be able to walk. So... I'm going to put a bunch of money into this research and it's going to be great for these people who probably also want to walk, uh, which I mean, obviously I don't speak for everyone. I'm sure there's lots of wheelchair users that would like to walk, uh, but it's not a priority for me. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people that it's also not a priority for, and it would only really be a priority for me because we build a world that's not made for wheelchairs. But if we change this conversation and we say, well, wait, what if we made the world more accessible to wheelchairs? then maybe it's not such a big deal that you're not able to walk. And this is really the root of, of what's called the social model of disability, which is that main question, right? Are we disabled by the things within our bodies that are different, or are we disabled by the structure of the world that's been built around us? And I think often, not just physical structures, but also uh, legalistic structures, policy structures, rules, and regulations can be just as disabling. Uh, can hold people back. And so I want to give you a great example because I find it hilarious. And uh, again, I say that with tongue firmly in cheek. Um, so ADP, and Candice mentioned the beloved uh, assistive devices program uh, earlier in the in the pod. 
so ADP, um, its its goal or its objective uh, is the funding of uh, when it comes to wheelchairs, quote mobility devices. Um, that the core of the funding is tied to mobility. And so there's a whole bunch of things that ADP that does not cover because it does not it doesn't it's not considered a part of mobility. So for instance, in my electric wheelchair, when I buy a new electric wheelchair, ADP does not cover the cost of the batteries because apparently that is not batteries are not a mobility device. Yes, they may be power the thing to be able to be mobile, but batteries, nope, not funded, uh, not a mobility device. Lights on the wheelchair so that you do not get run over by cars when you're driving on the road because they don't plow the sidewalks. Not a mobility device, therefore not funded. Um, but more importantly is on my wheelchair, I have what's called a seat elevation package. Uh, and so my wheelchair, my seat, uh, it has a hydraulic lift that allows my seat to raise up to about five feet high. Um, and it's pretty tall. Uh, tall enough that I'm able to sit behind my lectern uh, so I can lecture uh, when I'm teaching, high enough that I can reach desks, uh, books off of high shelves, I can reach cupboards, uh, things that I would not be able to reach sitting at about three feet high uh, in my electric wheelchair. Seat elevation is not considered a mobility product. It doesn't have anything to do in their view with mobility, and therefore it is not funded, uh, and you have to pay for it out of pocket, uh, which uh, most of them typically go for about $5,000 uh, to start uh, on top of, you know, a wheelchair that already costs about $30,000. Uh, so it's a not insignificant amount of money. Now, I want you to put a pin in that because then I want to bring you over here to a completely different government organization, which will pay for technology that will lower cabinets. So basically what our government has decided is that they will pay for my house to become accessible, but they will not pay for a technology that would make the entire world more accessible to me. Money that actually is way beyond $5,000 for the seat elevation kit on my wheelchair. And so we have this really difficult problem in which we take questions of disability or questions of access, and we scatter it across a bunch of different programs, a bunch of different industries, a bunch of different ministries. And we say, each of you are going to be responsible for a different piece. So the Ministry of Health, you have your mandate, and it is a very small, narrow scope mandate. And then the Ministry of Community and Social Services, you're going to have your mandate, and it's going to be this narrow scope little area. And then the Ministry of Transportation, you're going to have your own little scope. And then the Ministry that uh, works on the building code, you're going to have your own little mandate. So everyone has their own little mandates. They do not then talk to each other. And then used to get involved in anything that they think is not their problem. So ADP says, we only do mobility. Therefore, all these other things, like elevation or lights, uh, those are someone else's problem, essentially. And surely someone else is dealing with it. Because in Canada, we have universal health care. We give everything that people need. Uh, again, tongue firmly in cheek. This means that there are technologies that currently exist that are literally accessible, but are not financially accessible, meaning that unfortunately for too many people with disabilities, we're left looking at the shiny object that can solve problems in our life, but it is always just out of reach. It is always just not quite accessible, which then results in very specific outcomes.
outcomes that I would say are determined not by technology itself, but are determined by social, structural, and legal decisions that were made sometimes many years ago that we're now forced to live with the consequences of. Candace. Yeah, so, um, and therein lies a problem for somebody who is a single person who may have not been able to pay and to see, I'm, I'm talking about myself here, folks. I was diagnosed mm -hmm. with things out of university and, and I had to prove myself permanently disabled by outlying every barrier that I had throughout my daily living. That process can take months to years for some people in my province of Ontario. We lie under the Ontario Disability Support Program, which also uses the assistive devices program that Jeff was just speaking on. And someone in my position, though there are certain things that assistive devices will cover, there is zero, like absolutely zero wiggle room in the budget of someone on ODSP. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a mom trying to raise a kid. Um, I'm only lucky that I have a landlord who is a decent human being. Um, but I'm going through the process right now of, of trying to apply to several different agencies and programs, one being Ontario Renovates, for um, because assisted devices and ODSP won't cover any mobility aids for me until my unit is accessible. Now, I have privilege there in that my landlord is willing to do this. <laughs> now, most would not like this includes a 14 foot ramp out the front of his house and a chairlift at the back right a stair glide on the stairs to the basement so i can do laundry but again like as someone with disabilities i also have learning disabilities cognitive like i have a degenerative brain disease that um when i use energy it's it's gone like it's not like i can have a nap and and reset so all of this weight and all of this stress of all of these forms in a brain that's already bogged down trying to get ahead is is pretty rough right and that's why we're here sharing today honestly right so kyle is yeah. going to jump in here now too because we're we're all a little bit frustrated well, I mean, I, I, this is why I felt that the podcast needed to be created um, the way that it's been created, because, Jeff, what you're talking about, again, unless you've been in the system for whatever the reason, like Candace and I and, and such as yourself, I don't think most regular people know how the government is bleeding money, because when I, what I'm hearing when I'm when I'm listening to you is the fact that they're not putting the money towards where they should be. And that's why they need to have patients' opinions on it. And on top of it, they're not only are they bleeding money, such as forcing Candace to be in a chair that's more expensive than she needs <laughs> um, at this time. Um, and but but they're also keeping the very people that they want they say that they want to be in the workforce 
Like that's all I'm all I'm hearing is we're bleeding money right now. Like I, like we're we're bleeding money and and most other persons aren't aware because they don't understand or they've never heard or thought about it right from the horse's mouth in terms of the patients on how uh, and policymakers in terms of how this is actually um figured out and we all we we um yeah, we, we need this to occur in a different way. And that also might help the, the, the discrimination against persons with disabilities. Yeah. So <laughs> instead of bleeding money, I guess what I would call it is gross mismanagement. Yeah. Right. So uh, yeah, that's how it feels from my perspective of trying to live a life and, and, coming to the realization that maybe the tech could help me live a life and that I don't have to feel so stuck in the society. And then reaching all these barriers from the very system that is su supposed to be supporting me. And, and also the leaders who create these systems saying like, we don't want all of you folks on, on ODSP. In fact, most of you are fraudsters. Right, yeah. right from the podium, Mr. Doug Ford. So I'll call you out anytime. Come at me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the early lessons I received when I started working in um, sort of policy spaces and learning more about policy uh, is that government essentially has three options on everything. Everything they do, there's three options. There's do something, do nothing, or appear to do something. Uh, and appear to do something is 95% of the time the decision that's sort of made, intentionally or otherwise. I mean, sometimes there's like malicious intent there. Often there kind of isn't, right? Often it is this like, you know, we'll appear to do something about climate change. We'll appear to do something about access to um, a technology. We'll appear to do something about fixing healthcare. We'll appear to do something about fixing education. Uh, because at the bottom of it, I think there is a legitimate feeling in my experience with talking to legislators, talking to policy people, uh, there seems to be this feeling that like either A, um, this problem is way too big for me to fix in four years. And therefore I'm doomed if I, I'm doomed, I'll never do it. So I'll just appear to do something. Uh, or, or number two, that um, it's simply too expensive, uh, that we just don't have the money. Uh, that's just, that's just how it is. Um, you know, this is something I've heard a lot, especially with ODSP, uh, where people say, well, you know, if we wanted to give people a living wage for ODSP, it would bankrupt the government. Uh, and people say, my question, I think, is if our answer is it bankrupts government, why is the next statement, well, then we can't do it. It's too expensive. Why is it not? Why is that statement never followed by the question? then maybe the way we run our government is not working. <laughs> like if that, if giving a living wage to people so that they can live comfortably in our society, our developed society, if we cannot do that, then maybe it's actually the structure itself that needs to change. Um, and, you know, I think honestly, if you ever want to become radicalized in uh, you know, desires to, to re-energize democracy and to rebuild democratic society, uh, to be, you know, to borrow a, a phrase from our American brethren, uh, you know, government of the people, for the people, by the people. Um, if you want to become radicalized into that desire, um, live life with a disability, 
um, because there's nothing better to radicalize you uh, to the realization that the way that we have been doing things for so long simply is not working. Uh, and we've just taken it for granted that the people it's not working for don't have the power, the agency, or the ability to organize and to try to change things. And what's great about ICTs and what's great about the internet is that that's actually starting to change because disabled people are finding each other. We are finding each other online. You know, I grew up in a town where there was only a handful of people who used wheelchairs and almost none of them were my age. Uh, you know, I had one close friend who was a manual wheelchair user that I grew up with. But otherwise, I grew up in a world of, quote, non-disability, of non-disabled people. Um, I now am connected to disabled people from all over the world uh, that I talk to. And what's amazing about when we find each other on the Internet is we start to talk and we discover that our stories are all really similar. We're all having the same problems. We're all facing the same types of frustrating barriers. We can all see the solution, but have no means of actually reaching it. And what's amazing about the connection and what that moment, what happens when people start to realize that is they start to ask not, why is this happening to me? But rather they start saying, maybe we should do something about this. Maybe we should start working together to try to fix this problem instead. Uh, and so I think, you know, if you, this is a really exciting time uh, to be a disabled person in this world, uh, because never before have we had a greater opportunity to build a community, to build solidarity, especially across disability categories. Um, you know, growing up with a physical disability, all of the camps and all the programs and stuff that I did were for other wheelchair users. Uh, and so I wasn't really exposed to other people with different types of disabilities. You know, I mean, I volunteered with Special Olympics, but that was about the extent of it. Uh, whereas now on the internet, I'm suddenly tapped into and hearing about the fight for um, access, for instance, to, to Braille uh, in the United States for people that have visual impairments. I'm hearing about, you know, the fight for neurodiversity um, and the neuro, uh, the neurodivergent crowd, uh, looking for justice for people uh, who are neurodivergent as opposed to, quote, neurotypical. Um, I'm learning about all of these different types of experiences, all of these different types of impairments, and I'm seeing with them not problems that are the same as mine, but problems that are rooted in the same philosophical problem. And so suddenly now I'm saying, you know what, ASL, that is my problem. You mm -hmm. know, access for, uh, for, for neurodivergent learners in the classroom, that is my problem. Access to Braille, that is my problem. I don't need it, but it's all based on the same core problem, which is that for too long, we've been saying, Disabled people should exist in one place, their home. They shouldn't exist out in community. And so I'm all about it. Let's bring the disabled population to the public one way or another. And the only way we do that is from stuff like this. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for that. And like, what a great way for us to kind of wrap up a little bit here. Yeah, I think it's the perfect um, way to end But it. I would love in closing, Jeff, if you could, so... It only takes a few. You're talking about the connection, right? And we've made a connection here and we hope to make more and we hope to gather more. But would you give us a bit of the rundown of the story that you told us off off podcast um, earlier when we had our first meeting about the curb smashing? Yes, the curb smashers. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. 
Yeah, so I think what's what's really uh, what I love about what I do, I think at Kings, so I teach uh, our first year class of disability studies, uh, disability studies, 10 can exploring disability. Uh, and one of my favorite parts about this class is we teach a bunch of disability history. Uh, we teach about things that are like really cool moments in disability that have happened. And one thing that's amazing to me is how many students come up to us after class and say, why have I never heard this before? Why did I never hear this story? Why was I never taught this uh, in my classroom when I was in high school or in elementary school? Um, and the why, I can't really answer, but I'm trying to be part of the solution as opposed to uh, part of the problem. I'm trying to bring these stories. Um, and so there's a great story, I think, that comes out of uh, out of Berkeley, California, uh, in the United States. And uh, this group of guys who called themselves the Rolling Quads, uh, they were a group of guys who wanted to go to university. Uh, they were going to make it work. Uh, that would eventually spawn a huge independent living uh, movement, essentially. And as you know, back in the day, uh, wheelchairs couldn't get up onto curbs because curbs uh, were, by their very definition, uh, you know, a bit of a step up, right? Now, we nowadays take for granted curb cuts, uh, that ability for wheelchairs to get up from the, you know, the little cut that's been put in the curb. Well, that term sort of famously, it's a bit of a mythical story. There's a, there's some, you know, some mythologizing that's happened in the story. Uh, but really, it was this group of, of activists in Berkeley uh, who famously started going out in the night uh, and started breaking curbs. They started literally cutting them, you know, chiseling them with little hammers and stuff uh, to break up the curb to force access um, by, uh, by literally destroying the brake to allow it for, for wheelchairs to get up and on it. And what they found was that as they were doing these sort of curb cutting, they were breaking up these curbs, uh, people were like, oh, wait, this is way better. Why were we not doing this all along? You know, you had women who had, uh, you know, prams and, and strollers that were suddenly like, oh, wow, this is so much easier than trying to like, bump it up. You had people that had like grocery carts that were like, this is so much better. Oh, my God. You know, people with walkers that were like, hey, I can now get out in the community again. I thought I wasn't able to go for walks anymore. And so it's amazing how when we make little subtle changes to the environment, uh, that often these types of things are not just beneficial for, quote, the disabled, uh, but rather it actually is beneficial for almost everybody within the community. Uh, and we see this consistently when it comes to accessibility um, and, and inclusive design, that when done right, when we build things accessible, it's not just people with, quote, di di diagnosed disabilities who benefit, but rather it tends to be kind of everyone that tends to have benefit from it. Uh, and there are just so many examples of them. Uh, I think one of the great ones I, you know, one thing that I love are uh, captions. Uh, I have captions on on all of my media that I watch now, not because I have a hearing impairment, uh, but because I want to know what the script is saying. Sometimes you can't hear very well. I find I follow the story better. And that's a technology that was won through lawsuits in the United States where deaf people took Netflix to court and said, you got to have captions on this. you got to caption this material. We have to have access because that's what the Americans with Disabilities Act states. Uh, and after a bunch of legal wrangling, eventually they won. And now we all have captions, things that I benefit from despite not actually needing it. So there you are, listeners. I mean, thank you, Jeff, for um, coming in and speaking with us today. To our listeners out there, I hope you've learned something new listening to Jeff. And I've learned that it's maybe time to go out there and smash some barriers. What do you think, Candace? Okay. 
Well, <laughs> a cover photo on Connected Hearts helping Canada's Facebook page says breaking away barriers. Now, I don't think we're encouraging anybody to smash anything <laughs> non-metaphorically, but um, I'm prepared to rock some systems. How about you, Kyla? I am too, yes. And so with that, um, I'd like to thank you, Jeff, and to our listeners out there. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. I'm so happy you were able to join in and listen to us today. If you have an episode idea or would like to share your story, please email me at info at thepatientsperspective.com or join our Facebook page under the same name. From all of us who are working hard bringing patient issues to light, thank you for tuning in and supporting The Patient's Perspective. 